I think Islam hates us. They have done nothing except wreak havoc and terror for our faith and our religion. We, when we stand up to those who oppress our communities, that Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad. Foundations of society are fragile. We must be the shepherds of our own civilization. If anyone answers either yes or no without making necessary distinctions, both are not telling the truth. They're lying. Father, we pray that your word will become a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. That you will raise up in this nation pulpits and prophets that will call the nation back to repentance. Will you distance yourself from those who think differently or will you join us at the table and talk about what is really important? This is the Maida Initiative. Conversation without compromise. I remember we met during Ramadan at the dinner. It was over at over in like Kirkland and we just had this amazing conversation about about life and war and religion and death and art and everything and you you kept apologizing to me afterwards (laughs) (laughs) but actually that was that was the highlight of this Ramadan for me yeah I can be a bit too um, you know upfront and outright with my views and how I I like to live authentically I like to live my life um, with, you know, the truest, most honest form I could be. And I always, you know, try to employ this thing where whatever I do or think or believe uh, in private should also be something that I'm comfortable doing in public. So um, this could be a little bit of a high standards for some people, or I'm not sure if high standard is the right term. But this could be a little bit difficult because some people, you know, like to have their own, they're not very comfortable in their own skin to just lay it all out there. Where I'm one of those people who questions everything and I won't just accept things as they are, I have to truly believe them. And so that goes with career and religion and beliefs and yada, 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 all of that. Yeah, well, being honest about who you are and what you think can be exhausting. The only thing I can think of that would be more exhausting would be lying all the time. Exactly. I I don't think it's exhausting. I actually find it very comforting. <laughs> I don't think it's... I think once you come to accept who you are and really know yourself, um, it shouldn't be that exhausting. It should be comforting. And, and I think it's fun. And I think you, basically, I, I think that if you, if you live this way, you basically make friends or enemies quicker. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, and I wouldn't consider them enemies as much as maybe they consider me an enemy. I don't know. I just, if you don't like who I am, then you're not forced to be around me. It's as simple as that. Right. So I, I, it, to, in my experience, being open, honest, and friendly, ninety-eight percent of the people I interact with enjoy that. But then there's a two percent that just. Ugh. But there's always going to be people who aren't happy with you, and this this thing. You're not a Nutella jar. You're not supposed to make everyone happy. So <laughs> there is just that. That's just a fact of life. You know, it's just like me with my art. I do all these. Um, I love figurative work and I've been in love with figurative work since I was probably 12, 13 years old and it was just a fascinating with the female body and I remember 
what built upon that and and I do I do paint males and females it just so happened that that solo I had back in March was about the motherly figure but I previously I do have paintings of male figures but you know just me being from Iraq and Middle Eastern and having having a lot of followers uh, and collectors and people who enjoy my art who are from the Middle East it's such a foreign concept to them for someone who has a Muslim background to be just so open and okay with herself and hey this is what I paint and if you like it you know hello if you don't then goodbye and I've had to say a lot of goodbyes my block list you know don't jinx it keeps on growing <laughs> but it's just people send rude comments and they you know do the ad request and I use my social media mostly for work purposes I do have like um, an Instagram account that's personal I have like 70 followers on there 98% of them are my family <laughs> just like don't really have anyone on there to share my personal thing just my close-knit but when it comes to like my Facebook and my Facebook page and my art Instagram these are mostly people who I connect with to get inspired to share my aspirations my art how I think my artistic process exchange ideas collectors people who want to commission me on art it's just work and in this day and age as an artist I feel like social media plays a huge part because you get to display you know for example Instagram it's all about images and then that's when you get to display your art and you show people what they could be obtaining to hang in their home now for those who, who don't know your work as, as a woman from the Middle East obviously what you paint are women wearing hijabs or clothe people but I have a special interest in nude so <laughs> there goes that and I always do this argument hey the Pope commissioned Michelangelo to do all these nude figures and all these humans you know you guys need to go do your art history and it's just funny because you know the first artifacts of art that are prehistoric that before civilization existed you know we have Venus and what is Venus Venus is a small nude figure of a female so you know artists had always been fascinated by God's work by God's creation and in a way the artists aren't necessarily trying to recreate like a creature or like but it's just fascinating that I can get this close in painting what God has created and that's the figure so when you put clothes on it it's not much fun <laughs> Because, you know, I'm interested in the tone and the texture and I'm interested in the craftsmanship and my ability to make it look so real and the different kind of skins and the how the how life can take a toll on the human figure and how, you know, people at different ages have different shapes and their skin changes. And there's all these so many beautiful things, anatomically speaking, that are so fascinating for an artist to explore and could be used as a medium to talk about things in life but yet you know in our culture the human figure has been hypersexualized, and I feel that's the culprit of all problems in my opinion so I'm actually one thing I'm really interested winding back a bit is in Iraq itself obviously there's this amazing history of art and culture basically all human civilization starts in Iraq. Yeah, cradle of civilization. That's true. Yeah, I had a, I had a Saudi friend 
who when learning art in school in Jeddah, mm-hmm. their this is strict classical Islamic art is all geometric shapes and and not biological forms is yeah. now is that would that be common would that be kind of common orthodoxy where you're from or is it a little more blend of everything in Iraq uh, Jeddah is in Saudi oh yeah so, I, know, I know yeah I know. obviously Saudi is um, an Islamic uh, kingdom and it's it, you know, in my opinion, it happens to be on the more religious pendulum of Middle East in the way they enforce their religion. So they're probably just doing geometric Islamic art. And they are. And I feel like it's, it's changing now. I could be wrong. But I think with the new king, things are changing. But back from whatever this person was studying that was probably the situation in Jeddah and I would expect it to be that way in Saudi Arabia in Iraq I did not study art in Iraq I left Iraq when I was 11 (laughs) so but from what I hear from people is that it was a lot more progressive back in the 70s 60s 80s up up until the 90s is when things hit rock bottom in terms of like because it was war, you know, war to war, back to back. You know, the Persian Gulf War, and then the the Gulf War, the first Gulf War with the Kuwaiti invasion, and all that. So it was just a lot of, uh, you know, unrest, which affected the educational system. But prior to that, the educational system was premier. It was amazing. It was great. We had a lot of, we had some of the best teaching hospitals, and in terms of fine art they were amazing they had some of the best fine art schools in the middle east people used to travel from other countries to study in baghdad i think it was at the university of baghdad or mustansaria i'm not sure now i think the iraqi art education took a big hit just like any other let's say non-essential i mean it is essential and non-essential but like, you know, I would think as a budget, you know, I would probably put more money into teaching medicine than teaching art in a country that has a lot of political unrest and wars. Yeah. Sorry, is that you or me? That's me, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I'm not really sure if that was purposeful, that the art education in Iraq has taken kind of a backseat. Um or it's just a result of the unrest that's happening. There's a lot of corruption currently in Iraq, so it's considered a super, super young country in terms of establishing itself after getting rid of a dictatorship and trying to establish a democracy, so still needs more time. Yeah, and now another podcast I listened to with you, you were, you were talking about how you're involved in a project right now to basically save some of that ancient art. Yes, um... So I am collaborating, so I do have a science background. My undergrad was in biochemistry and cell biology, and I did my master's in nutrition science and policy. And so I was approached by this Iraqi artist who uh, is a professor, I believe he's a tenured professor at NYU uh, for photography. Um, And he has done many uh, conceptual art projects in the past, where one of them, he implanted a camera in the back of his head. (laughs) He's pretty brilliant. His ideas are brilliant. And so his idea was he wants to preserve the culture and the art 
in Iraq, in Iraq. And after ISIS blew up those monuments in Mosul, everybody was torn by that. Everybody was hurt by that. These are historical artifacts that aren't just for Iraq. This is a world thing. That's like for everybody. It's a humanity thing. Right, right. Um, and it was the winged um, bull and the winged lion. So his idea was, um, do you want to collaborate with me on this? And the idea was that we would um, store the data of how to reconstruct those destroyed artifacts in the DNA of seeds. Um, and uh, DNA data storage is like a newest cutting edge research that you know Microsoft has been working with UW on it and a lot of other places and uh, you know it's already been done at Harvard someone had documented an entire book in a small plant um, and so I would say it's the future of data storage because we will eventually run because there's a lot of data that we're, we're generating data at a rate way higher than what we can store and eventually we're gonna run out of space and we're gonna have to decompress and come up with new ways and that's one new way because seeds have been shown they would stand the test of time. You can keep seeds for a really long time under the right conditions. Um, and the DNA can stay dormant up until you plant them and you make trees out of them. And so that would replicate with the plants. And the way to do it really, it's not like you're taking like, you know, information and storing it in a chip in a seed. That's not how it works. You know, we would use a third-party company that generates synthetic DNA, and then we would use something like Morse code, and there's a way of doing it in the lab, and then you insert this new DNA that represents this data into the plant, and it gets preserved, and then it gets made into seeds, and that's how it is. But right now we're at the stage of, we're trying to connect with a lab that would help us with this project. So I helped write the proposal on how to do this experiment based on my background and um, in science and as an Iraqi and as an you know Iraqi American artist and all of these things I think that's I think that's actually really really important because I think a lot of the modern solutions to crises around the world are all about physical needs you know shelter medicine food we, obviously that's good yeah that's all necessary but human beings are not just those things that I think it's going to make a huge difference for future Iraqis rebuilding the nation, that they can see art built by their ancestors and be inspired, not just, exactly. oh, we have stuff. Exactly. And I mean, this is how humanity has been ever since. I mean, since the Stone Ages, since the, the, the oldest art that we found in the caves, did people think like, oh, this is not important. I'll just hunt and do nothing else. But then there's someone else who said, hey, let me document what we're doing to show generations later. And so art really has this noble message. It can have, art can have this noble message. And art could be misused. And art could be misused to, you know, affect the masses and give the wrong message. And, you know, you just... We have all these tools, and it's just it plays on this other part of our brain that we can't quite put our hands on. It's not quite logical and it's not quite emotional, but it's just this ether of serene experience, you know, that we are humans and we are more than just robots or animals, you know.
Absolutely. And w- one thing I, I was I was thinking of is that if you look at the, say, the pyramids, people would think about how much of a waste of resources was it to build those back then. And I don't know why they built them. Nobody really does. But the pyramids has been something that people have been visiting as tourists for about 3,000 years at this point. And if at some point in the past people had not invested in those things, then Egypt would have lost out. Part of what drives people towards Egypt is this amazing rich history of art and culture. So I can't comment on, you know, Pharaoh, whoever, and his economic policies at the time, but it paid off. It paid off, yeah. It's important. And if we're just trying to justify everything with figures and paper, like, say, the Soviet Union was, well, they'll build disgusting grey apartments for everybody that no one ever wants to go visit again. Mm-hmm. Unless they're really into sort of post-apocalyptic <laughs> things and want to see something like that. That's funny. I think, um, I think art can serve the snowball, uh, you know, um, I guess that's not the right word. Art can serve as a way to encourage people. So even for the Egyptians themselves, when they look at their rich history and they look at those monuments, they say, hey, we can't give up. Look at who we are. And that propels them to improve upon themselves when they are struck with uh, adversity. And I feel like art could do that. That's how you can inspire people, is you could show that, hey, I can create something beautiful despite all the problems I've had, despite all the adversity, despite what I've been through. Look, I can make all these things, you know, and they're beautiful and they're can, you know, they can be enjoyed by others. And um, that is one of the reasons why I like art so much is that it has that healing effect. And it's not something that you can teach. Well, sort of, but also you kind of have to dig deep down and figure out what your talent is and channel it into art, right? So, so speaking of that, that's a great segue to talk about your sort of origin story because working as a professional artist is somewhat of a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> somebody, somebody who's gone through, who's gone through biology training and everything you've gone through, and says, "I'm going to, I'm going to become an artist." That does not work for most people. Yet here you are. Yet when you add in every other thing you've gone through in your life, yeah, even crazier, right? Yeah. So talk about. So, so you, your family, were your family refugees from Iraq? Oh yeah, we were refugees. Um, we immigrated back in '98, and uh, we started from below zero. <laughs> um, it's funny because back in Baghdad in the '90s, I come from a middle class family. My family were really well off, and we had multiple cars. Sorry, in a big house, and we lived a really comfortable life. But um, we had to immigrate due to political issues and unrest and some problems that happened at the time um, we had to leave like leave for good and when we left there was no way for us to figure out what's gonna happen to us where we're going what is our future like so that was by itself terrifying for everyone knowing that you're going to new countries where you don't know what's gonna happen to you and you don't even know how you're gonna make a living there um, and then you were comfortable back home you have your house your jobs your cars your neighbors like this is your comfort zone and then you're leaving all of that and starting from scratch 
multiple times, not one. <laughs> so we first went to Jordan, and then from Jordan we went to Syria, and then from Syria we came here, all as refugees, obviously. And, um, you know, and I feel like, yes, it was probably the hardest here. There was the language barrier. There was the cultural barrier. There was the religious barrier. There was all these, you know, um, the way of life here, it's different than back home. Um, you know, back home, it's like you're in the street and you say, help, I need help. You know, 10 people jump to help you. Um, it's, it's easier, more acceptable for communities to help each other. Here, it's more individualistic. Um, I feel like I can't make generalizations in the U.S. because certain parts of the U.S., um, certain states and cities are more community uh, involved and some are not. So it's I'm not making a generalization that, oh, nobody helps anyone in the U.S. But I'm saying in general, in general, compared with the Middle East, the Middle East is more of a community-based thing where it's a little bit easier to navigate your way through than especially when you come here with no language and trying to figure like you're used to knocking on your neighbor's neighbor's door and say hey can i have a cup of sugar that's like normal back home i had never done that here in the past 21 years <laughs> i would never do it because <laughs> i think people would think i'm weird <laughs> and maybe it's maybe they won't but that's that's the feel for example and so there was that and then there was the struggle of the language barrier and then you know getting on with that and finding a job i've been working since i was 16 and i went to school in high school and i was working at cvs i remember and then after that when i was in college i was also working throughout my college and then um, fast forward later on my mom got diagnosed with the most aggressive type of cancer and that was really hard that was probably the hardest experience in my life. Um, and that's harder than going through the Gulf War and having missiles fall behind your house. That was harder than that, in my opinion. Um, yeah, there is some trauma from the war, obviously, but I think having my mom there was comforting and being around family was comforting. And family and my mom were the thing that always was with me my whole life. And so, when I uh, when I lost her, it was just like a feeling of loss. Like yeah. that's the thing that was with me all the time, and now it's gone. Because you know that bond proved that it can withstand anything. It can withstand war. It can withstand traveling through countries. But then when she's gone, it's like nothing matters anymore. Just like I lost that meaning, you know, like that I had kind of a meaning that I wanted to accomplish with her being alive. And when I lost her and her, her cancer journey was really tough. You know, she tried every single treatment out there and uh, she passed away here in Seattle. After she passed away is when I was like, I can't live like this anymore. I need to change things. I need to live authentically and only live a life that I want to live and that I'm really happy with. So I'm not gonna sit here and try to live for someone else or continue on 
you know, with decisions that I made with my old self because my new self has changed drastically. So it's hard. You know, that kind of experience, you know, as my therapist says, he said that was the hair that broke the camel's back. <laughs> he said, you were resilient, you were holding on, you had all this trauma in the past, but then that was it, that did it for you. That's when you were like, nope, I can't take it anymore. And with that, you know, there was a transformation, obviously, in everything. Um, so I was, when she was ill and she was dying, I was um, almost done with my master's. I took a break. After she passed away, I went back to school. I had to finish my master's because that's what I do. <laughs> I finish everything I start. And right when I finished it, I, I graduated. I had a good GPA, you know, 3.6, I think. It was good. I don't have any bad grades. And I got certified in the state of Washington. And then I said, I want to be happy. Or at least I want to be doing something that I'm happy and excited about. I couldn't be around sick people because it was too traumatizing. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't work in a hospital. I can't do that. And I mean, that's what I was getting prepped for, right? As a nutritionist, to work around people with health issues. I couldn't tackle that anymore because it was too close, too close to home to me. And many close people to me couldn't understand that. They couldn't understand that. This was difficult. And so I had, of course, family members who opposed this decision and, you know, you've just finished all this and you worked really hard. And There was no support, period. There was no support. So I kind of had to do everything myself. And, you know, I started from zero. I went back to the basics. I started taking myself back to uh, open studio life drawing sessions where you pay like $15 and there's a model and you sketch. So I went back to that and then I started to participate in a nonprofit gallery and then I became a member and then I got voted into the on their board of directors and that's even more involvement with nonprofit work and helping young artists or just anyone who wants to start an art career. That's a place, you know, a safe place for them to start. And it just kept on one opportunity after the other. And I was, I, when, I, when I wanted to become an artist, I mean, I've been painting and drawing since I was three. So this was not a new idea to me. But doing it on that grand scale was the new idea. Switching from a hobby of something that I had in the corner of my room into, hey, this is my life. And I paint large paintings they're all huge uh, I was just prepping myself for something big and so um, that was a big movement and uh, I did it as a full-time job so I didn't just it's not really enjoyment as much as it's actual work but it's rewarding work yes yeah and I enjoy doing it but I'm approaching it like a job I resonate to some extent because I, I do have a side hustle oh you do yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I make uh, custom action figures. Oh, yeah, you told me. I remember. Those are amazing. I saw them. Oh, thanks. Now, th so there's two ways that happens. Either I just kind of make what I want to make and just see if people buy them. Yeah. Which is my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Other times, people will request, request something, agree on an amount of money. Yeah. And that one is way more stressful. Yeah. Because then I... 
the, when I'm just doing what I want to do, I can just do what I'm interested in. But when you're doing it, you've, you've just got to push yourself to a higher level if it's something that you're, you've agreed to money on yeah. before. Yeah. And even this. So having conversations about ideas and people and everything. Yeah. It's something I've been doing for a long time. But doing this full time, running the Almeida Initiative, I've just got to push myself in a whole different way to make it feasible yeah. and to make a living from it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, and that's, that's the nature about entrepreneurs. I think they're the only people who would love to work eight hours, 80 hours a week instead of a 40 hour week, <laughs> just because they want to do what they want to do. And that's the nature of entrepreneurs. I totally get it. Um, and you know, and it, and there's, you know, there's, this romanticism about art that you know you just sit and paint but in reality i mean maybe that's how i started but in reality no there's like so much more like i make hand embellished prints i take commissions from people i um have to apply for shows and i have to you know constantly update my website constantly update my social media respond to people uh talk to collectors go and you know, remove the canvas from the wood and have to roll it up and package it and ship it internationally. There's all these other things that I end up like, let's say my time is on 100%. I do 60% no painting and 40% painting. Yeah. The 60% is all this other work that I need to do to actually make a living out of my art. And also, you know, you have to be realistic. Like if I didn't have a wiggle room to explore my art I wouldn't have had so I had a little bit of wiggle room I was able to explore it uh, but you know let's say if I have to pay rent and if I had bills and I have a child and it's either paint or that no of course I will do what it what it what it is you know I need to do to meet my priorities and needs first before I um, I embark on a risk you know a risk-taking journey so um, I'm not discouraging anybody from pursuing art. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying be reasonable. If you're reasonable and you're a hard worker, you can eventually make that switch. That's all it is. You've got to be realistic and grounded about the amount of work and planning it's going to take to do it effectively. That's true. And you also have to be able to enjoy it. You need to find uh, a way to enjoy what you do. You know even as non-painting like those other things you need to find a way to enjoy doing them otherwise it will be a drag and then you'll find yourself back at your nine to five doing something that you don't really like so how do you make your sort of paperwork and administrative work enjoyable for yourself um i mean i don't have a lot of administrative work it's mostly like for example i enjoy recreating uh, my hand embellished prints um so that sometimes I end up driving around a lot, like picking up the prints, driving to buy supplies for packaging. And so with that, I listen to audiobooks. <laughs> um, I try to, I always listen to something, lecture or audiobook or music. And then like, I just make a list and I do it. And sometimes it gets overwhelming. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I was just talking to a friend this morning and I'm like, help me. I don't know. I feel lost. <laughs> and he was like, okay, I recommend you read this book. That really helped me when I was feeling this way and etc. So you have to have a support system. You have to have your tribe, people that 
understand you that get you that you know you are gonna get sound advice from it's important to have that around you as well um, we're not meant to do everything alone and when I was feeling like I was doing things alone I had to move out of that space what sort of audiobooks you've been listening to um, so I just downloaded audible this morning so okay. um, actually I was before that I was listening to a free audiobook on YouTube by Louise Hay you can heal your life I don't know if you know her no um, she's she has the Hay publishing books she works with metaphysics um, do you know dr. wine Dyer okay no. <laughs> yeah there are um, a lot of like m- metaphysics and um, kind of uh, interpersonal work you know and looking at how you can heal your own life and um, that sort of thing okay that, that's interesting I'll motivation kind of yeah send me whichever one you ends up being your favorite on audible send me and I'll I'll, I'll make I'll, I'll listen to it yeah absolutely because I I try and listen to about an hour of audiobooks a day mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. and I try and I'm trying to not just listen to the same things all the time because it's easy to get hyper focused so my main audio listening has actually been Islamic history of all things oh. which is probably it's just relevant to what I do but it's easy to get kind of hyper focused on that mm-hmm. and sometimes big companies hire people from outside their discipline in order to look at a problem because people in the discipline get so hyper focused on something that they can't think about outside of these things yeah. so I like to try and keep my thinking broad in what I listen to yeah. otherwise it just gets I'm always team self improvement <laughs> So I'm always trying to find ways to help me cope and help me become more efficient at what I do. And I've been this way since I was little. This is not new. But um, it grew even more now and it you know, took a different direction. It's not just you know, how to plan your day, but it's more like observe your emotions, observe your needs. Are you honest with yourself? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, like are you um, happy? What makes you happy? What are the patterns of your behavior that are driving your decision making? It's just, and you know, I recently went through a divorce, so that was also pretty hard on me. Um, it, you know, what my ex-husband is still in my life. We are friends. We are raising a child together. We live close to each other. I talk to him every single day. So that's a little bit hard. Yeah. Because you're not quite moved on. You're, you, sometimes you need a little bit of time away from a certain person to be able to move on and for your wounds to heal but we didn't get that break him and I no no so it's it's tough and it's also hard when you are separating from someone that you don't necessarily hate you know like I don't I actually love him you know I have feelings for him and he's my daughter's um father but as a couple as a married couple it just didn't work anymore for us we just have different very different personalities very different ways of life very different lifestyles and it just kept on getting harder and harder and harder and harder and so at the end it was just the best of my well-being and his well-being is that we're separated and so we decided on it and it got finalized but the thing is is that experience allowed me to observe myself and my patterns and 
what I really need and how do I, how do I not fall into that again? How do I avoid making similar mistakes again? Although I don't think my union was with him was a mistake, I think it was the right decision at that time. I think it's just life. And in the in that situation, you can never be fully away from a person who you share fifty percent of a child's DNA with. Exactly. Yeah, and we are doing fifty fifty. So she's with me fifty percent of the time, and with him fifty percent of the time. But it's just harder that way because we are still in touch with each other and we see each other we talk daily so yeah so you were talking about that kind of collapse of meaning in your life when you when you lost your mother so, so honestly how, how are you doing with meaning and purpose in life right now hmm I feel like my daughter takes the top priority in that um, so she's my family, she's my priority, her well-being, her needs, and all that. But, um, you know, there, are, it's a pendulum, right? It swings both ways. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't ask me when I'm depressed. Ask me when I'm feeling happy. So right now I'm happy and I'm good. And I think, like, eventually, like, my art career will take off even more than it has been already right now. Right now, it's good, but it's not good at the stage. I'm still considered an emerging artist. So it's it's not at the stage of where I can 100% depend just on my art. I still need to wait for that. So that is a work in progress. It has improved dramatically in the past two years. Amazing. The, where I used to sell and how I use sell now is just a huge difference, which is great. So going at that rate, things will get better in the future. And I think that is meaningful. I think, you know, um, going through the journey to do something every day for nine hours that I truly love is, you know, what life should be about. Because, you know, my idea in the past was that I would do this job nine to five and then on the weekend or when I have time, I'll do art. It doesn't work like this. No. So I couldn't. So that's that that's meaningless to me. So I could not do that anymore. Although I do love what I study, but I think just given how traumatic my experience with losing my mom was, I cannot venture into healthcare anymore. And I, and that's a decision that is hard for me because I do enjoy learning about those things. I do enjoy using them. Um just not in the conventional sense like, you know, using my scientific knowledge to write the proposal for that research art conceptual art project that was great i think if, i think it will come up in ways like this but not in the traditional clientele sitting one-on-one -on -one with someone um so the meaning in life is to find you know a meaning to life that's in my opinion so you, you have to always be searching for the things that make your life more meaningful and satisfying and it's really not a size you know one fits all maybe the unpredictability of my career gives my life a meaning but to others it makes them terrified and they want stability and predictability and they don't want to have to ride the roller coaster of a creative career and so it really it's individualistic but it goes back to being honest with yourself. 
and honest with yourself on what you need and what makes you comfortable and happy. So I'm actually really curious to dig deeper into your sort of religious journey mm-hmm. through all this. So, so your your family was was it was your family Sunni or Shia? Sushi. Sushi. <laughs> sushi. That make, I always say I'm sushi. <laughs> They're mixed and. 90% of them are not religious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, some of them drink, you know, alcohol and it's prohibited. And they party, they date it, they do everything. They don't really, I wouldn't say, I mean, the only person I know who's, who is like very religious is my grandma. <laughs> everyone has a really religious <laughs> grandma. Yeah, you know, just my grandmother. But everyone else was pretty much fair game. They did what they want to do. Um, within the confined, you know, Middle Eastern, whatever. But pretty much they all lived a pretty um, modern life, I would say. One, one of my favorite moments of this last year is I went to lunch with a Saudi family. And it was, it was a halal restaurant. Mm-hmm. And this, the father's just like, he's like a 60-year-old Saudi guy. Yeah. Said, excuse me, red wine, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then the waiters like really awkwardly looked at each other and like, okay, we'll get it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, it's... Um, and I feel like maybe people like that have found the same thing I found, which is like, you know, um, God lives within us. And I don't think the merciful, gracious um, God who had created us and created this whole world, in my opinion, is going to care about little things like you know, drinking and those like little minute details. I feel like in the grand scheme of things, God is not going to care about that. And that, it's something that got corrected. I would say corrected because I think I was doing religion wrong prior to my mom's passing. Um, So after she passed away, I was really angry at God. I was so angry. I didn't want to do anything that has to do with any religion for as long as I could. Um, And I only, I would say, kind of came back home a few months ago when we met that was around the time when I was going back home and I say going back home meaning going back to spirituality and faith and God and the meaning of God and the benefits of prayer and how to do prayer in a way that is more spiritual and not a chore yeah it can you can easily fall into that in the Islamic world because our religion is structured and we have like five prayers a day each prayer is a certain number of things and you say these certain things and you do these everything is so structured like you're supposed to wash there's all these rules about being clean and pure like you can't have nail polish on if you want to pray for example I'm like does God really really God gonna care about me having like I'm trying to connect with God. How is Nepal going to prevent me from that? So there's these things that I just like sit and I'm just like, that is just making life harder. Like we're modern. We live in a modern world now. You know, things like by these rules, I should be a monk in a hut in a forest by myself. And I can't. I can't live like that. So once I, you know, cross these things, once I was able to hop over these barriers that have been bred in me for years, that they were supposed to follow these certain rules, I was able to enjoy spirituality more. I was able to understand God more. And, uh, you know, just 
try to be grateful every day as much as I can when I remember I try to be grateful it's hard because I tend to be negative a lot yeah well it'd be easy to considering everything you've gone through right yeah but also there's a lot of stuff that I should be grateful for and I am grateful for because despite what I have gone through I had a mom who literally secured my future and I now I'm a mom and when I look at her journey I'm like how did she do it how did she do it I can never do what she did it's difficult what she went through and how she did it and how she brought us to the US that standard is like winning the lottery like I'm trying to explain how hard it is to do what she did because where we were in the environment we were in it wasn't feasible for us to just come to the US so whatever she had to go through whatever she did to bring us here it's like her winning the lottery and for that I have to be grateful because that moment when we got the visa to come to the US that was the happiest moment in my life hands down nothing ever beat that I'm still trying to find something to measure up to it nothing so I have to be grateful for that you know yeah so you've got these two threads right you've seen the horrors of the world but you've also seen this amazing story that you've got to experience and be a part of and all these amazing blessings you have as well yeah and part of those horror and some of those horrible things have brought you to where you are now yeah exactly and so you can't disregard that and you also need people need to stop blaming their parents because at some point you're an adult where you can make your own decisions and you can't just blame your parents for you know you you can there is a point where you need to stop blaming your parents it's not your fault that wounds and things and circumstances happen to you it's not your fault sometimes life it's not is not fair that's true i agree bad things happen to good people it's life but it is your responsibility to heal your wounds to figure out how you can move on next and be healthy and you know reset yourself and so that's where i am that's where i struggled with for a long time i struggled with you know forgiving my father because he kind of walked walked out on us when we were little and my mom had to do all the burden by herself and so i didn't speak to my dad for 22 years and he lives here in oregon i didn't speak to him until last year when i decided i want to forgive him and that was a whole new revelation that was something that i really needed to do um I had to accept him for who he is and that was difficult because I was always pondering this he should have done this he should have done that he should have he should have he should have instead of saying that's who he is his flaws his rhetoric his story is his and it's based on some things he went through during his childhood or his life so he's a product of his environment and my dad was in war more than half of his life when he married my mom so let me tell you this is actually kind of funny <laughs> just to put a funny twist on this sad story so when him and my mom got married in the 80s it was the iran iraq war right when they got married uh i think there was a lot of bombs going off the electricity went off in their wedding so they lit candles <laughs> in the wedding and then right after the wedding 
he got called to war. So he went to war. So imagine in three, four years like this where he's in war and he comes home once a month only to see my mom. No marriage can survive this. <laughs> so they had to separate. So they separated, went on for a few years in their own lives and there was problems and stuff and then families got involved and got them back together. Yay, happy again. <laughs> we're under one roof. The Gulf War happens. Oh. He gets called to war again. <laughs> and they separate again. <laughs> so you see, and then, so my dad has been in war every time there was a war in Iraq. Even this latest one, he was heavily involved in it. So, you know, it's difficult when you're someone who's a soldier in the war or whatever. It's difficult for you to have a family. So that is also a huge part that for the longest time, I never paid attention to. That part of this was also all the, that is not a normal country. It's not gonna bring about normal people in normal circumstances. The country is in unrest situation for decades, okay? So, um, so it's just, it's funny, but you know, that revelation brought up to me last year when I met him and he kind of pointed that out to me and I was like, gosh, I never thought about that. It's absolutely true. How could anybody ever work on anything when you have, when you're being called to war? Just the traumas of the war by themselves are good enough to manage to ruin you for life. Imagine you have to go back and fix your family. And I mean, look at what we have here with the veterans, you know, the rates of P PTSD when they come back from Afghanistan and Iraq and all that. And, you know, the mental illness they go through. Uh, you know, we're blessed in a country here where there are programs and people recognize these things but in iraq that doesn't exist nobody pays attention to the veterans there and their mental state and what they go through after there are no you know sound compensations there are some compensations but no sound compensations that will take care of them once they are damaged you know they pay little to their families or to them but this doesn't really do much because there's bigger damage that's been happening that's that's actually now you mention that it's really interesting that in all the middle middle eastern histories i've read or listened to one thing that you never hear talked about is the wounded warriors you yes. talk you you hear about the victorious warriors you hear about the dead warriors but you don't hear about the wounded ones yeah yeah exactly and that's terrible you know, mental illness has been this thing that's taboo in the Middle East. If you mention to someone that you're seeing a therapist, oh, you must be crazy. And that's terrible. It's terrible. Like, we desperately need mental health awareness in Middle East. And, you know, and I think that is changing from what I, you know, can see from the blog sphere and online, because I haven't been back in ages. But I think it is changing, and I think some people are getting more aware and going to see therapists, etc. But not as, not as, it's still not as accepted, as widely accepted as it is here or in the Western world. You know, um, that's one art I do. So I, I paint figures, but I also conduct uh, interactive life events about mental health awareness and how you can use art, channel those uh, psychological wounds into art. And, you know use art for healing so that's something I'm also passionate about because it was my way of dealing with things unknowingly I had no idea I was doing that since I was a child I was dealing with my parents divorce that way I was dealing with uh, 
you know, the war that way, with the uncertainty, with my dad's absence, with immigrating, everything. There was so much pain. And I grew up around strong women who didn't want to talk about pain. These women, my mom and my grandmother, didn't want to talk about pain. They always talked about buck up, move on. What's the next best thing you can do for yourself? And so it wasn't the best strategy. <laughs> it was kind of like, shut it out, like don't talk about it. And so it, me internalizing it, I couldn't. So it came out in me doing art, I would say. Now, what's interesting is hearing that a a attitude from your mother. It actually seems like it's affected you in some way, and I think in a good way. And here's what, I, here's what I'm saying. I think that we've almost gone the exact opposite way from, from if, if we take, 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 let's say, 1950s, the post-World War II generation, people never talked about mental health stuff here all that much. You start talking about PTSD really after Vietnam. Yeah. And I think what's broken in our culture to some extent about this is that there's almost this indefinite understanding for people to be able to get better which I think ensures some people stay sick longer whereas in the past there's this expectation where you either kind of get better and be able to live in the real world or you just or you just die mm -hmm. and I think that it sounds like for, for you that you've decided not to blame other people for your problems yeah you've decided that you're going to fight for your life you're going to fight for your future yes despite everything yes because at the end of the day this is my life i make my own decisions and i am you know i feel like yes i can blame certain things that are completely outside the confine you know of my being of course there are some, like, you know, who am I going to blame for the war? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's just a matter of, that's life, you know? But then, like, I can't, I feel like at certain point, I have to take responsibility for everything that happens in my life. And that helps me to decide what it is I need to do next and how pragmatic and practical and how to balance that out with what I love to do. And... Just getting stuck in the loop of blame and the victim. I dislike the victim mentality. I like to believe that I am stronger than that. And I would like to believe that, yes, life is unfair sometimes, but hey, I can pick myself right up and march into something great. Um, because I, I grew up seeing that with my grandmother. I grew up seeing that with my mom. Um, they both insisted on that. So they, they were both women who are very strong, who controlled their own destiny, despite the usual Middle Eastern timid woman who stays back at home and lets the husband do all the deciding. They were like, nope, we're taking charge. We're going to do the right thing for our children. And so I don't understand what the benefit is from me blaming someone else for my mistakes or not mistakes, but for the situations in my life. What do I get out of spending energy blaming someone else? How is that going to improve my current state? No, I would shift my focus, put the blame to the side, 
okay, they did what they did, this is life, this doesn't serve me, I can't be around them, for example, for my mental health or whatever, I forgive them, let them be, and now what do I do next to make a better life? What's my next move? How do I decide, you know, what are my priorities? What's my focus? So it's, I don't really like to focus so much on that. It's just negative. I did for the longest time. I mean, I blamed for my dad. I blamed, you know, well, he abandoned us. So it's, you know, this and that. It's difficult. And, you know, and then what? How did that make me any better? Maybe it held me back a little bit. Maybe if I was able to forgive him sooner and just focus on my energy, all my energy on something more beneficial, maybe I would have been a more successful artist earlier in life, not at this stage. I don't know. Everything happens for a reason, but I just don't see any point. Yeah. So you talk. I want to go back to something you mentioned. You're talking about how prayer has changed for you. So you talk. Yeah. So you're talking about this ritualistic thing that it can become versus what? What does prayer look like for you now? I mean, I still do the ritualistic prayer. I just think that getting bogged down so much on the the minute details uh, is a bit much for me. And that sometimes can deter me from the whole prayer because then it becomes this ordeal. Yeah. You have to shower a certain way. You have to, you know, wash your arms and your face a certain way, which is, I'm fine by that. But it's just like, for now, if I want to pray quickly, I just face, talk to God. Just a quick thing. Talk to that to God heart to heart. Straight up. Hey, God. You know everything. That's what I always say. You know everything. Can you help me? How do I decide? Can you help me figure out what do I what I what I need to do next? That's hard. <laughs> and I don't go to that place often. That's very rare. Because I feel like God would expect better of me. So I only go to him when it's absolutely necessary when I'm completely blindfolded and lost but if I'm not I feel like God had given me a brain that can help me decide how to navigate my life you know I know God is great and he can and he or she God can encompass everyone and everything um, but I also want to take it upon myself to be strong and to be stronger always and so when I am feeling absolutely helpless and totally lost and I feel like I don't know what to do next that's when I go to God um, and you know I have been entertaining our religious prayers just not in the traditional sense so if yeah. you talk to a religious clerk and you tell him Shiba is doing this he'll be like what is she doing that's her own thing but I believe that God hears me even if it's not like as so you're supposed to do it five times a day every single day and I don't get to do that sometimes. Sometimes I get to three. Sometimes I can't do any. Sometimes I do all five of them. And one of them is like a sunrise. And sometimes it's hard for me to wake up at 4 a.m. <laughs> to do the prayer at sunrise. It's beautiful. It's the most beautiful experience because everything is, everyone is asleep. It's quiet. You don't hear anything. You're there. You're purified. You're sitting. You're just facing the divine. It's amazing. 
but it's difficult in this world of you know that means i'd have to go to bed at eight and i don't go to bed at eight so it's just you know but it is a beautiful thing and i wish you know i wish i can work myself up to it you know it, it is something i would like to be able to do at some point to be able to wake up every day at 4 30 a.m and pray i'm i'm not sure i have that ambition <laughs> <laughs> I still think God would still love you and me and all of his creatures. I think I'd have a better shot of just like staying up till 4 a.m. You could also do that. <laughs> you could also stay up until, you know, as long as you do the prayer at sunrise, that's all that matters. I think one time I was watching this um, uh, person. She's like a mystic. So she's between, she's more a spiritual person who's a healer. Uh, so she's between Christianity and Islam and Hinduism. She kind of combines all of them. And she does a lot of natural, naturopathic healing. And she talks about, you know, the benefits of living like, a, you know, um, a chemical free life. And so it's just this whole holistic approach. And she was talking about how the set prayer times for sunrise in the Islamic faith have to do with the earth rotation at that time and the earth location you know uh, in correspondence with the other planets and how that kind of that kind of energy goes through you as you pray and you kneel down and you touch your head to the ground how that ritualistic and so i guess there's these other things that we don't know about <laughs> that could be the reason why those you know and I, I believe i believe that there are plenty of things that i barely scratch the surface of learning about them that would actually it actually makes sense that that philosophy is in there because the prayer times are actually originally in zoroastrianism before they were in islam so as islam spreads it incorporates the zoroastrian prayer schedule zoroastrian yeah so the main religion in say iran uh -huh. persia area before islam was the islamic sources call it magianism or magians uh -huh. But that's that's a that's a system that exists in the mostly in the sort of middle world before before Islam, and they had the same. I think believe they had the same five daily, or maybe three out of five. I've never heard of that before. Thank you for sharing. I want to look that up. Zoroastrian. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 mean, I, I should write it down. I won't try and spell it out loud. No, now. I mean you know it's uh, okay. So if you look at the Islamic prayer, it looks a lot like the sun salutation from the Indian, you know, the Hinduism, like how, when you do yoga, have you ever done yoga? No, I've never So if you, if you ever done yoga, the sun salutation looks almost identical to our prayer. It's the kneeling, the touching your knees, the getting on the ground. So yeah, I believe that a lot of, you know, the practices in the faith of Islam had been adapted from previous faiths and religions and, you know, uh, the Prophet Muhammad was a really really intelligent person aside from i'm not going to go into discussing you know the validity or like oh is he a prophet is he this is this is not my area of expertise but just assessing as someone from an outside like looking back at what he did i think he's a super super intelligent human being clearly yeah and at the time when he was spreading Islam, he was spreading it in an area that desperately needed it at the time. You know, how there was a lot of um, unfair practices in trade, 
they were treating women unfairly they were treating young girls unfairly and so he wanted to restore balance and you know whether it's being really a message from god or whether him just being a really smart intelligent person who wanted to create a, a healthy ecosystem for everybody both ways he wins you know and if people it's 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 an ideal world i always i always say this i say if people practice every single thing that has preached has been preached in islam we would be living in an ideal world like don't lie don't cheat don't steal you know keep your attention on your spouse don't you know look at others don't this there's all these and if people really just follow them verbatim then we would but it's hard human nature this is a very high standard well i think <laughs> and i think that's true with almost yeah. any any religious standard if you that's take true. any system try and actually apply it consistently yeah probably make the world a better place yeah but it's so hard to do that it is hard yeah but it's good to have that system in place regardless it's a place for people to always refer back to because imagine imagine its absence imagine we didn't have something like Islam where would ha where would we be right now you know it, it was from what I gathered and correct me if I'm wrong if and you know if I apologize I apologize if my information is wrong but from what I had seen is that at the time when Islam came down in that region there was a lot of uh, practices that were unfair especially with trading and like loaning money and stuff like that and I think that it, it had it did have an economical implication as well in terms of like establishing a welfare system because that was one of the goals of the house of money that's what Ahlul Bayt which is the, the so his grandchildren and his daughter and her husband and all those people they are the they're called Ahlul Bayt the yeah. people of his home they made it a point to live super humbly and the money that they gathered, they, they gather from everybody, whatever, was used to pay for widowed women, retired people. Like they established a retirement and a welfare system at the time, which is brilliant. It's great. And I, I think it, if I can, I could be wrong, but I think I read somewhere that somehow the welfare system was adapted from it or other welfare systems in the world currently in our contemporary times were adapted from that welfare system that was established back in the day. It's very, very plausible. It's difficult to, sometimes it's difficult to figure out exactly if there's a common thread to an idea. Exactly, or yeah, it, it's hard, it's hard. You know, history is written by the winners. That's one of the turnoffs me about history books. Because you were mentioning that you're reading a lot about Islamic history. While I, I applaud you for that, that is great. But keep in mind, history is always written by the winners. So there's always something we don't know. Yeah, there's that, always that, something being twisted. That that's true. But I do think it's become less like that since this in, in the ancient world. Think about Persia, Babylon, the Assyrians. What you do at that point is you'd come along when you conquered a city, you'd burn all their books and literature and t tear down all their statues and build your own and tell your own versions of it. And I think since about. 500 AD for the last 1500 years history has been less like that and and, and largely I think it's, it's less about the victors writing history and more about what sticks in people's popular imagination hmm. 
Because if you th if you think about how people are going to define the Iraq War, I don't think people are going to define it by the official U.S. government narrative or the Iraqi narrative. They're going to define it by the best movies. That's how they define World War Two. I think in in our contemporary times, I agree. But I just feel I always I always sit and wonder how much of the Quran has been accurate and how much of it has been tampered with. And yeah, this is something that no Muslim person wants me to ever utter or say. And it, it might be offensive to some people. Um, and I don't to mean to be offensive. I'm just discussing philosophies here. <laughs> like, how do we know for sure it has not been tampered with? <laughs> like, they tell you you would know. But then I still can't tell. Like, I, I'm not able to tell. You know, and, and maybe it has not been tampered with. Maybe the explanations of the poetry in the Quran have been and that is inter an interesting er area because there's different people that have different explanations and it seemed like people would have an explanation to whatever suits their need at the time yes <laughs> so like because uh, it's hard it's poetry right and it's difficult poetry the Quran it's not easy so it's not like there are some things that are straightforward okay I get it this this that there's some things I'm like, hmm, what's just that? And there's some things that have a historical reference. Like, this came down because this war was happening at the time between these two people. You can't apply this to our modern time. You have to look at the history of when this came down or when this was brought up about. And the issue is people will take that out of context now. And so that's why I feel like, you know, somehow it can be lost in translation and be misused well i think the that that's what you're you're getting right to the heart of it so let's let's assume the quran is completely unchanged which i don't necessarily have a super strong opinion on that mm -hmm. there's there's plenty of references in the early hadith that that there's parts that were around that are no longer around mm. like so sahih muslim has a couple of references to surahs that just do not exist anymore Muslim? yeah Sahih Muslim so that's the yeah. second largest Hadith collection we'd consider I know but there's new new people new ways of thinking and, and new reformers right now who are showing us uh, things that defy what he's saying yeah so then you're like what? it's been yeah. a lie <laughs> but, but even but even, even yeah. in even in say the earliest commentaries even the earliest yeah. tafsir yeah. often what they'll do is they'll put two stories next to each other and say this sir might be a response to this or it might be a response to this we're not really sure and so what happens because the source material the hadith and the sunnah is so vast and hard to access most people are just say no no don't worry about this just trust your leaders right now don't ask too many questions so it's very difficult to get a good grasp of wait what what is this actually saying and that's actually against what prophet muhammad's first teaching which is you're supposed to seek knowledge and his metaphor was even if it was in china because china was so far back then yeah like you're supposed to seek knowledge so listening blindly and accepting religion from your parents blindly is actually a mistake prophet muhammad peace upon him would never want people to do that he repeatedly said that so when someone, you know, when someone says don't question and just listen to your leaders, 
that person is pretty much going against what Prophet Muhammad's teaching is. Basic teaching. So, yeah, I don't buy that. <laughs> Especially me. I'm just like, nope, I'm going to do more research. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and what's interesting is early on in the Islamic world, you had a group called the Muatazalites who were this group of people who wanted to test everything. And have you heard the term Ijtihad? Yeah. yeah so that's, but that was prominent in the Islamic Golden Age. But then that gave way to this idea of Taqlid, which is imitation. Taqlid, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is every, all the big questions have been solved. So your job is just to find a scholar that you is reliable. And in then, the Shia, you're talking about the Shia sect. No, I'm talking about... I'm talking about this in, is mostly in our contemporary times what you're describing is practiced by the Shia is you you have these scholars that you do taklid you yeah. pick one of them and usually they passed extensive hard examinations um, and so you could do that and you can also look at all of them and make your own decision the only thing is that if you say I'm gonna follow this particular person supposedly that you know you're like it's on him not on you if yeah. what you're doing is wrong I don't like I don't necessarily like that way of thinking or to subscribe to it some people it serves them some people they need that you know for some reason and I guess it's the less of evils well I don't know and this is not a middle this is not just the Middle Eastern thing this is exactly what's going on in contemporary politics as well you just pick a side, pick a party, and delegate all responsibility to somebody else to fix your problems for you and not take personal responsibility. Yeah. You put a D or an R next to your name and, okay, it's lesser of two evils. I'm just going to stick with the party. I'm not going to question things myself. I'm just going to... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's all diplomatic, right? And I mean, until this day, religion is somehow interwined with politics. And even in this country. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so, like, we claim to not do this, but we do this here. And it is still all around the world, you know. And most of the countries around the world, not ever. Because it's in China, it's not that way. If I'm... Well... I don't know what... The, the, the religion of no religion, I call it. I don't know. Yeah, it is. And you're right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is the thing. I don't think it's actually possible to separate religion and politics in the way people here say that you that we do. Because politics is always going to be influenced by our worldview, yeah. right? our, by our sense of right and wrong. Right. And that is influenced by our religious beliefs. But, you know, you also have these people who don't subscribe to any religion. You have people who are atheists. Yeah, it's true, but they still have a worldview. Exactly. So why can't we derive, like, you know, there are certain humanitarian aspects that I don't necessarily need a god to tell me this is wrong. I can just follow my gut. <laughs> As a human being, this is wrong, for example. Like, I feel like humans should have a compass, aside from the divine, that they should know what's right and wrong. So, so I agree, but I, 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 as a Christian, I believe that that divine compass is within people because we're made in God's image. So sitting, so sitting, so sitting here talking to you, it's very interesting what you talked about with feeling like God doesn't really care about these small rituals, but cares about the substance of what you're doing and and the way you pray. What's actually really fascinating 
is that the way you're describing your prayers is almost exactly how Jesus told people to pray. Mm-hmm. He says, because he, in his day, it's a day where people are very externally religious, but are missing the substance behind it mm-hmm. in some ways. So he says, when you pray, don't go pray in public like the hypocrites do. They love to be seen. When you pray, go to your room in private and your father in heaven knows what you need before you ask it. So pray them like this. Mm-hmm. And so it's a conversational approach to God. Yeah. Because he's a father who loves us. Yeah. So, so you, 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 I think, have this sense of that in you. Well, it's no surprise. I mean, have you seen the Quran? More than half of it is about Jesus peace upon him and Mary the Virgin upon her. Like we grew up with these names. We grew up praying to these people as these are huge in the Islamic faith. Yeah. So yes, Prophet Muhammad is of course, you know, the leader of the Islam and you know, he's the prophet, but you can't disregard Jesus, you can't disregard Moses, <laughs> Joseph, like and especially Jesus, you know, the um, peace upon him and Mary the Virgin, you know, they they are huge in our faith. And so yeah, I think Islam have some practices that are built upon the past, you know, and maybe they reinstated some of the things that they got lost. Like, because I remember one time I was at a field trip uh, in Los Angeles. We went to this beautiful church. It's a beautiful church. It's architectural phenomenon. It's immaculate. And they had, when we walked in, they had this huge round marble water fountain. And they said, oh, in the ancient times, the priests used to wash before prayer, much like what Muslims do now. So I'm not sure how in the evolution of Islam that got reinstated because it was back then. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's interesting how maybe the pendulum swinged so much to the other side that Muslims are like, okay, let's bring back the basics. <laughs> I don't know. I think if that makes any sense. Yeah, so, so yeah. I think a lot of the a lot of the more ceremonial stuff in Christianity really develops in the probably around the same time Islam develops, actually. So for example, the idea of a priest. You don't actually have priests in the Bible itself, at least not in the New Testament. You you have the idea of elders, which is not a ceremonial religious title. Priests become a thing in about 500 AD. So you've got, that's probably probably about 100 years before Muhammad is born that you start to get a lot of these ritualistic things, which are, I think happen as things are borrowed from the nations around, around them. So you go into Rome and suddenly Christianity goes from being illegal to being the state religion within a 50-year period. Oh, wow. And they just yeah. absorb a lot of things yeah. in there, some for yeah. good a lot of things for bad as well yeah. yeah yeah it's interesting you know religions i mean the monotheistic religions at least you know judaism christianity and islam i always say this they have a lot more in common than in differences but people like to focus on the differences well but i think i think the commonalities almost make the differences bigger in some ways I think people can feel that way if they want to, <laughs> or they could just say they're all, you know, um, 
messages to the same end. They're means to the same end. So if I would, you know, um, if I want to like hyper focus on Christianity or Islam or whatever, yeah, I'm going to see differences, of course. And within Islam, I'm going to see differences. Right, right. You know, I told you I'm sushi. So I think yeah. it started from there, you know, like yeah. we like I grew up in a sorry, it's the chair. I grew up in a household where um, there my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and my mom, everyone was pretty chill about the differences. So my dad was Sunni, my mom was Shia. And in general, in Iraq, back in the 80s and 90s, people didn't really have much of, uh, they weren't really butting head that much about being Sunni or Shia. They just didn't care. You want to pray this way, pray this way, whatever, I don't care. They just didn't mind. Um, so it wasn't such, it wasn't such a huge deal. And I feel like growing up like that is what made me chill about not having such strong like oh this is christian or this is no like it's okay we're all praying to the same god at the end of the day these religions teach pretty similar big things and it's like if i want to focus on the ritual rituals of prayer then i should focus on the differences between religions if that makes sense but i try to look at god spirituality and religion from a bigger perspective something that encompasses all and i feel like that's probably the only way that i can navigate is to not be so severe in my judgment about the differences my my way of thinking about it is that i think we should see religious traditions in a similar way we see parents in that and cultures in that there's going to be good things everywhere that the two people the two mistakes people make with their parents and their cultures is by either idealizing everything mm -hmm. or demonizing everything either th either my parents are the best people in the world and they can do nothing wrong or they're the worst people in the world and everything in my life is 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 their fault i don't 100% agree with you no no because i feel like there are people who exist who can look at things with a more of a perspective. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not saying yeah. I'm not saying everybody does that. Yeah. I'm just saying those are the two ditches on the sides of the road to fall into. But there is people in the middle too. Yes. And there's a growing number of them too. So yes to a certain extent but not I feel like there's a big body of people who are able to look at their parents or religion and say okay well there's this there's that there are different times we're in different times now we can be moderate we don't have to be extremists we could you know and i feel like that body is growing and it goes back to the guy who was ordering a red wine at the halal place who <laughs> who's saudi right so this guy falls into that growing body of being more accepting and of just kind of being in the middle of things and not necessarily taking a harsh stand on alcohol for example you know i well i personally don't like alcohol never drink never will drink i don't like the smell of it <laughs> i just my reasons for not liking alcohol are not religious they are health and rates of car accidents and issues that people deal with because of alcoholism yes and how people can be predisposed to addictions and when they consume alcohol that feeds into it and it's a vicious cycle so I have like more of an ethical, philosophical view on alcohol itself. Um, and that's the reason why I don't consume it. But in terms of religion thing, I think consuming a little bit of wine is fine. Like I don't think God is going to 
that's it need to help like that well I, I, so this this comes down to ultimately ultimately we need to live in a world with some rules absolutely and 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 the difficulty is discerning what are the important rules and what are the unimportant ones yeah and and that's and, and that's so I don't think I don't think many people I won't say any I don't think many people deliberately go making religious rules to try and make people's lives more difficult no it's not like that I think I think it's more like sometimes politically you know certain political agendas will misuse religion or use religion to further their uh, causes and uh, people who are in politics are not religious figures <laughs> well that depends on your your attitude towards religion um, I still stand by saying people of politics are not religious figures I agree with you yeah but that is not traditional Sunni orthodoxy either because you've got I'm not Sunni okay sushi <laughs> I'm sushi remember this, this is true I'm not anything true let's just say I am a child of this universe yeah I'm not well I mean I do I am Muslim I do admit that I am Muslim and I'm proud to be Muslim but I don't uh, subscribe to Sunni or Shia or no 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 none of that I'm just straight up Muslim I'm a human being I love everybody I just don't really care about these details but uh, I know what you're saying and I have a lot of opinions about that um, I think sometimes it's outdated when the you know the political when, when the government is like I I'm gonna I'm gonna not talk about Saudi I'm gonna talk about Iraq yeah okay I think Iraq needs um, uh, nothing with religion. Like I think the, the 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 government has to be what do you call that? Uh, sec sectarian. Secular. Secular. Like sorry, the religion need like the 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 government needs to be secular. No religious involvement whatsoever. Nothing from religious figures. And I think that would solve a lot of Iraq's problems because what's happening is having religious influence means having religious influence from countries that are ruled by religion in the region and so we're losing we're losing what the you know the whole point of of having an, a nation to itself iraq like it's losing itself because of that um and i don't really want to give opinions about other countries because i'm not very familiar with them but i am familiar with the country i was born in to a certain extent i'm not an expert in the contemporary politics you know i couldn't tell you who's who right now but Generally, from you know speaking and looking at the corruption levels and stuff, I think governments should be secular. I think religion should stay religion, and the government should stay government, and they need to be completely secular, not have any religious involvement in it. Because, because religion can play on emotions. And when it comes to the well-being of everybody, and when it comes to making decisions that are most important for the country as a whole um, it needs to be dealt with more pragmatic and less on you know for example this is what Jesus wants you to do 
I just don't think that's like I just when I see this stuff sometimes with all due respect I cringe you know I'm just like why are you doing this like no like you know going uh, oh I am uh, a politician Jesus spoke to me like I just to me that is just like I think Jesus will have better things to do in my opinion and I think it Jesus is bigger than speaking to a politician to win an election um and you then you find out a bunch of corrupted stuff that this oh, yeah. person did and you're just like so that's my and it's the same in iraq right now oh i'm the chosen one i'm right. this i'm that and you have all these people saying all these things you know and it's just like the average person who isn't well versed in politics and you know doesn't know much is gonna oh this is what the person at my mosque is saying that's who i'm gonna vote for and i just that that's the part that I dislike the most, and that's why I think governments should be secular. <laughs> so, so here's my here's where I would well, here's the argument I'd make that I believe in a separation of powers that religious powers and governmental powers should be separate. But I don't think it's possible. It's not possible to separate moral ideas from the from from governing. Because laws ultimately have to be based on a certain sense of what we believe is is right and wrong. And even the separation of powers is basically built on the example of Jesus himself. So if you look at, say, freedom of expression coming in in the West, it starts with a guy called John Locke. It doesn't start there, but really it gets fleshed out by, guy, by two guys, John Milton and John Locke. And what they're appealing to is that Jesus in his character never forced anyone through coercion to become a Christian or to follow him, but he used persuasion. And when he's on trial, the Roman governor asks him, are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be would pick up swords and they would be fighting so I wouldn't be delivered over to you but my kingdom is not of this world so the idea is that Jesus as king of the whole world after his death and resurrection doesn't he himself does not govern through coercion he never used coercion on people so we as Christians should not use coercion to change people's ideas they should be left to be able to do that themselves then government so the government the government has a certain God has given the government a certain job, which is to protect people's freedoms, to punish crimes, and to protect from foreign invaders to make sure people are honest in their dealings. And it's not to enforce this grand vision of morality on everyone else. It's just there to do a certain mundane job. And then the church's job is there to push against the culture, to push against people's morality and immorality, and to help them look more like God through personal transformation and those people who are transformed will hopefully go on to make better laws so it's really the fight of Christian ideas in civilization is not about trying to take power and take over it's about trying to win hearts and minds and any idea is like that it's unfortunate because I mean that's a lovely idea but it is an idea and the other thing I want to say, I share with you, is I think that humans, humans, the human race, has not evolved 
We are not evolved. Agreed. We still kill each other for money and power. How different are we from people who lived back in the caves? Oh, now we have cell phones and fancy cars and computers. But then when it comes to power and money, we would murder each other for that. Animals don't do that. Animals would only kill if they want to eat. Like, or to protect themselves. But they wouldn't go invade someone else and kill and do a power trip and all. So humans need to evolve. And unfortunately, and I hate to be this pessimistic person, it seems like we are kind of going towards a not very good direction, especially with what's happening with the ecosystem right now and, you know, global warming and all of these things. Like, I feel like things are going to get a lot worse before humanity, humans, wake up to evolve that we exist to coexist. We're not existing as individual powers. And I feel like it will take a lot of loss in order for humans to get to that point. I just, this is just an idea, again. <laughs> well, it, it, it really, it really... It's de- a depressing one. <laughs> well, I think that... There's there's two there's two sides of it as well because with with the climate stuff obviously we need to take care of the world. One of my concerns in that is that people like to people tend to use crises to take power as well. Yeah. And I'm I'm I, I'm I'm more worried about I'm more worried about the the West centralizing power than I am about India and China's carbon emissions because. If you, if you if you if we if we want to say okay we have 12 years to fix the world or we're going to die mm-hmm. then then suddenly it's very easy to get into the ends justify the means well look at india and china they're putting out all this carbon and they don't stop so we have to use force otherwise we're all going to die mm-hmm. uh, no, no one's i don't think anyone's actively planning that at this point but i'm always wary about i'm always I'm more worried about human power than I am about... And and that's a very, very valid concern, and it is a very valid idea, seriously, because, yeah, it could be... We could be hearing this other side, and this idea has been a propaganda by certain people because they want to push a certain agenda. Absolutely. I totally see it. But at the same time, we could also be suffering from, you know, powerful people who want to generate a lot of well for themselves disregarding everyone else and how their methods of generating wealth is impacting the rest of the world you know and you know like i was watching this show the other day on netflix and some people love it some people hate it it's the uh, hassan minaj oh yeah I've, I've, seen, I've, I've seen did you couple. see the episode of the um cruise ships no i didn't oh my goodness i saw that episode i'm like i'm never going on a cruise ship again <laughs> The amount of waste those generate, it's horrific. It's awful. And so, like, I, I never knew that before. So this is just a small example, you know. It's just a small example of where do they dump their waste? They dump it into the ocean. And how does that impact the cycle of everything? I mean, as someone with, again, biochemistry, cell biology, you know, scientific background, when I hear these things, I can see how everything is getting affected. I can see the cycles being broken, how things are deteriorating, right? So, like, it's frightening. So, yes, you're right. And this idea is right. Your idea is right. It's just how do we know? Right. <laughs> how do we know which, which to troop for? <laughs> well, I, I think the, we, we have to find solutions to the world's problems without centralizing power too much. 
Absolutely. That we have to move through persuasion and not through coercion, because th- the thing is, whatever whatever power you give to your friend, you should never give power to your friends who you don't want in the hands of your enemies. Exactly. And and that's the because you're right. I don't think people evolve. I think human nature is is fixed. I think individual people can get better, but I don't think we collectively get better unless individuals are improving themselves and you think that could only be done through the power of like for example the church or like a religious power so that's why you think you know we should have like a government power and a religious power that can help people improve so we can reach that instead of us collectively well i I think the religious power is inevitable and I think you have to recognize what it's good for and what it's not good for. In, in the, the religion and ideology being a powerful force in, 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 in the world is inevitable. But you need some restraints that if everybody... So there's a, say, let's say everybody becomes, in America becomes... Say we get a 95% Mormon majority in America tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then you start wanting to enforce Mormon ideas on a wide scale. You've got to you've got to have an idea of okay, where do we stop actually pushing people from a legal perspective? So, so in my in my set of ideas, I don't want to get to the point if I if I became king of America, I don't want to get to a point where I'm using coercion to change the way people live. There's some laws that you have to enforce, and that. I obviously want enforced from my worldview, mm-hmm. but you you can't do everything. And even in the Bible, even in this, even in the Old Testament, when everybody's ruled by this religious government, there's still a separation of powers. The king and the priests have different jobs. The king can't do priest stuff. The priest can't do king stuff. And some things are laws, but not everything that's a sin is right. a law. Yeah. So, for example, in the Bible. Being drunk is a sin. It's not a crime. Yeah. Now, if you're drunk and negligent and you kill somebody, that is a crime. Yeah. Because it's impacting somebody else. Yeah. Some kind of similar. Well, it started out like that in Islam, but then people started to pray while they were drunk, and then the prophet was like, "Don't pray when you're drunk. You're supposed to be sober." So he was just like, "Okay, no more drinking. Period." Because he tried to like to get people to like, okay, you can drink. But then when people took it far and they were like not behaving, like, you know, like everything has its time. Yeah, there's actually a crazy story about that. So one of the early caliphs, they're, they're, one of their governors of, I believe it was of Damascus, mm-hmm. got so drunk that he walked into the mosque and threw up. Oh my gosh. And... The, the guy then the guy and and the guy wouldn't remove him yeah. so this led to this popular revolt against this guy about the so Aisha one of Muhammad's wives she took off her like sandals and she threw it at the caliph because he wasn't doing enough and they just like this whole uproar yeah. over it so the any 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 ideology is going to have some impact on law so so if you have if you have a 98% atheist mentality, they're going to have to decide. They're going to have their own view of what right is, what wrong is, and they're going to have to decide what do we enforce by law and what do we not enforce by law. 
So basically, I take the life of Jesus as kind of my breaks as, okay, this far and no further. Mm -hmm. That we want a country where you need ample representation in court. That you can't just prosecute someone off hearsay. You can't murder people. That if somebody is raped, that that should be a, a capital crime. These sorts of things. But things like if somebody had if somebody has a dissenting opinion, there's no law prohibiting that. There's no laws against not being a Christian or what you eat or what you drink there's got to be there's got to be some set of laws but my goal is to win people and see people change through persuasion not through coercion because i don't think it makes ideas stronger absolutely i mean anything i don't think anything would be successful in the wrong in the long run if it's um force never it's just like back to the example of the parents. If your parents persuade you into certain things, how would you? How would the longevity of your decision is versus them coercing you into certain thing? You'll probably do it temporarily to please them, and then once you can do things on your own, you'll revert back to your own ways. And this applies to people as well. Yes. So I I totally agree with you. It's just it's a really difficult, you know, thing to give a hundred percent opinion on especially for me i feel like i know so little like i know stuff but i still don't know enough you know i my opinion religion should always be this spiritual temple that people choose to go to to get back in touch with themselves and pray and uh, kind of the idea of the Hinduism practice of meditation and how you know you practice religion by you know um, it's it's more like it's there for you to go but it's not necessarily um, it's not so enforced in a way that it needs to be in everything we do and I'm not really sure if they do that in India or not D- depends. The Hinduism is almost like a hundred different religions under exactly. a single banner. But like, you know, this contemporary uh, shallow idea of mine, of Hinduism. I'm not going to say I have a deep understanding of it. I really don't. But like this, you know, shallow opinion I have of Hinduism is this place of this temple that I go to whenever I need some guidance and to be in touch with my inner being um, and to pray. But I don't necessarily want this to be involved in politics and in decision making and in, you know, my mortgage and like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like those things should be based on, you know, uh, social studies, uh, you know, things that are based on the welfare of everyone. Maybe we can take concepts and ideas from religion, but not necessarily have religious power in the government. So that's, that's where I am in terms of I'm not sure that religion needs to have power as I feel like it should be powerful on its own no, I, in I terms agree. of pe- people like like it's so powerful that I am going to devote two days today in the temple I think that's powerful that it's taken two, two, you know, two, uh, two hours out of my time to go there and just do that so that's that's the power but not necessarily have like money and banks and you know be able to make decisions for people about that 
that is where I'm just like not sure about it because I feel like in the contemporary times religion has been misused by politicians and it has been misused in leading people into directions and doing things that they shouldn't be doing so I agree and I think what I think that's largely the responsibility of people in, in the in the Bible we're all expected to understand what right and wrong is ourselves and to be able to hold our leaders to those accounts and as much as you can separate religious leadership from politics which I think you should you can't really separate ethical ideas so, so for example right let's talk about say refugees as, as an example here now in a Hindu so the idea that all people are equal for example is something that does not exist in Hinduism. They have a caste system, and helping somebody in an unfortunate situation can actually be bad karma for you because you're not, if you're reincarnated, it's actually slowing down their process of ascending the ladder. Because of the yeah, like I said, I know nothing about the actual Hinduism. The only thing I know is this shallow idea of going to a temple and praying and doing meditation. And so yeah, sorry, go ahead. So so for me, the my my religious beliefs have drastically pushed me in the ways I interact with the world. Mm-hmm. So you and I sitting across from this table, as a kid growing up in Britain after nine eleven, mm-hmm. I just remember this feeling of righteous satisfaction of seeing British and US troops invade Iraq. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the right thing to do. I thought that was the best but thing. But what Iraq has to do with nine eleven? Nothing. No, nothing. I, I, <laughs> That's the question. That's no. the question that I was pondering the whole time. I'm like, okay, the people that were involved are not Iraqi. So why are they going to Iraq? But, like, I was just always pondering that. Like, I had the most puzzled look on my face when I found out they were going to do that. And my friends were laughing. I'm like, makes no sense. So, yeah. so, so what, but what pushed me is this biblical idea is that everyone is made in the image of God that people from one nation are not better from people from another nation. All of us have unique dignity, value, and worth. And, and then another thing that p- pushed me is that I, I was... is that I think it's very easy to idealize this idea of empire, that Western governments or any righteous governments or whatever going into another place, getting rid of the bad leaders, putting in good leaders, everything's happy. Yeah, that always works. And, and so that, that was my probably my default assumption about the world, is that you can just go and do that. But, but, did, but did you know, for example, that Saddam back in the day was on good terms with the U.S.? I've learned that since. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, that's the funny part that people don't know, is that you're only a bad leader when you don't agree with us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're a good leader and our friend as long as you say yes to everything. So it's just, there's really no morality. Like, he like he called America, but before he invaded Kuwait, he called to checks, like, what, what do you guys think? And they're like, we have no opinion on this. And he's like, okay. And, and so it, it, it's, it's, it's all messed up. So, but the thing that pushed me is the Bible's view of what a human being is and how we should interact with other nations as well that i see that the bible does not like empires but it wants people to live in their own to self to govern themselves to be free to explore their own ideas and to to be going through persuasions as well 
and the people in the Middle East were not my ideological enemies, but they were image bearers of God that I couldn't just put in this other other category. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then, and then, as far as how that interacts with national borders and refugees, well, there's there's a great deal in the Bible about how you're supposed to take care of foreigners among you. There's there's a great deal of that, and I'm not. I, I think it's I think it's complicated. I think that depends on the system you have. It's difficult to you can't fix every problem. Like if violating you, international laws, though, is not cool. No, it is <laughs> so not. So whatever happened last year around you know between June and July and the whole ordeal about all these kids being put in a detention center at the border, separating from their parents, that was just like i was just like what is happening why are we experiencing this here in what god's name are we doing this like this is so inhumane and even the law itself from my understanding and i'm not an expert uh is that only if someone committed a crime you would do this to them but these people didn't really commit a crime they just crossed over asking for refuge what are you going to benefit from separating a child who's a few months old from their mom? Like, some of this, these kids were still nursing. Y- yes. And now, to be fair, while the situation has been appalling in some ways, that there are also some le- legitimate concerns as well. And, he, and here's, here's the rationale that I remember... Have you ever been to... I was in China, and... You see, you see street kids, mm-hmm. and in India too, and they, they usually all work for somebody. Okay. And 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 one 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 problem there is at the border, and while this is clumsily applied against people, it doesn't deserve to be applied to. There's legitimately human trafficking stuff that goes on. So people want to bring kids over want to get over the border more easily and to sell them for sex slavery. Okay, I mean, I, I get that, but there's a lot of... There were a lot of cases where it's clear that the parents are being separated from their children. Yes, yes, yes. Like yes. the Honduran man who committed suicide in the cell because, well, he didn't speak the language. They didn't bring a translator. He didn't understand what's happening. No one explained to him. Took his kid and his wife from him away he got angry he wrestled with them they put him in a solitary confinement he doesn't know what's happening he hung himself and this person had endured so much nobody puts their kids in the ocean unless the water is safer than the land this is coming from an immigrant who had to leave her own country yet it's we came here legally we didn't cross any borders illegally everything was legal but you know it was hard for us to leave our comfort zone and for people to leave, whatever they're leaving has to be worse than what they're going to, to go through. So I think, you know, I have a very strong opinion about that. This is why I painted that painting. Yeah. The one I really don't care, do you? Because, you know, the first lady decided to wear that jacket and go visit the detention camp <laughs> that has all these house children right around all that crazy stuff, which I thought it was in very poor taste. And so I created that painting. And that painting was just generating a dialogue about how when 
politicians who are in power who want to you know push their agendas who really who really suffers it's children even if there is human trafficking even if there is i don't know there are children those kids are innocent how is it beneficial separating them from their moms fine you suspect that put them together and then interrogate the mom yeah so there was a lot of things that have been just done wrong and outside of any any nation law like there were rules that have been violated internationally you know human human rights so i'm sorry that is just super close to home for yeah, me yeah. i have a very strong opinion about that particular incident in in this regard i'm a mom yeah and i cannot imagine what it's like if you know i remember my own experience coming as an immigrant and i choke at the possibility that right when i step foot in this country they take my mom away from me yeah i couldn't bear the thought of her dying when i'm a 30 something year old how would that translate when i'm 11 or 10 so like that was my only safety net and then imagining that happened to a lot of children not only that those children are being displaced in foster homes and some of them they couldn't be traced back to their parents like the chaos that came after that yes any 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 way we can do things which avoid children being put in foster care is going to be a win because foster parents foster care is not a good parent to anybody the, what what I'd be in favor of is you'd basically build this. I think we need to do more as a culture to welcome immigrants. So I would the way I would have the way I'd work at immigration in this country, and I'm not campaigning for anything. It's just something I think about sometimes. Yeah. Is I'd basically st- have a network of employers, communities, people willing to help. Yeah. And 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 then who can help provide housing jobs education i think this country is rich enough to have a system in place for this particular problem like a few years ago i was reading this article that was written by a politician and she was suggesting the system of people would travel here on a contract for jobs and then go back you know like they can come here as you know lawnmowers and house cleaners or whatever but it's like a contract they travel here, they work, and they go back. There are so many ways, things you can do to prevent this. Yeah. It's just not much attention has been given to it. And it's and if it's a real problem and you don't want this influx, there is there are other ways to put This is a rich country. We can afford to put a system down for this so I, border. So I would try and desystematize it, and I think that's the problem. The, the Because I think we try and get the central government to fix everything is inevitably deadlocked. Why? It shouldn't be. There no, should it shouldn't be, be. There should be systems in place, and sh- there should be professionals in place too. So I would basically, I would have, I'd want a system of nonprofits and volunteers who can say, "Hey, we can take twenty people, or we can take a hundred people, we can take two people, we can take one person." I I was under the understanding that this did happen to a certain extent. Some sometimes, yeah. And and I feel like sometimes some of the volunteers who got involved and it's like you know those volunteers who wanted to patrol the border and would beat people up for trying to cross like i think that's unnecessary oh yeah yeah so that's why i don't like the volunteer idea (laughs) because sometimes i wonder why these people are trying to volunteer like is this you know just someone who's just angry at brown people who wants to be at the border and beat them up 
as they were trying to cross. I mean, but you can you can have the same problem in law enforcement too, right? You can have somebody well, go into there, politics. Or but there into... is a system, right? So, like, if there is a system and there is a manager and there's people above me, there are there are certain ways of doing things. It's that's why we have rules. There's less likely of my prejudice to be if, to be affecting the system of me of someone who basically I can do whatever I want and no one can hold me liable because I am not working for you. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm not working for you, so I could do whatever I want. Like, you know, the stories I heard about children being molested in those detention camps. Like, that kind of stuff. Like, that stuff will literally keep me up at night. Like, if I was a parent and my child, I don't know what's happening to them. What do I do? What do I do if this happened to them? Like, how, how can... Like, it's really hard to think about. And think about these parents who are thinking they are doing the best for their children by coming. You know, and there's also things about um, enabling foreign policy to the cartels and the problems that are happening in those countries as well that are driving this influx of immigrants. So there is a multitude of things that things that we can hyper focus on here. But then there's also foreign policy that can possibly affect what's happening. Yeah. And stop these things from stop these people from coming in. Yeah. And the, the I think the biggest switch for me is i th- when i was 15 i'd have probably seen seen an influx of immigrants as a threat to my culture but as i've as i've well and it's understandable right because you have people who come from a completely different background into this new nation that has everything different different people who look different they speak different you know everyone is feeling weird you're not comfortable because these people look weird and they're invading your area and you're used to things being a certain way and they're don't know what to do they're like blindfolded trying to speak the language make some money to live feed their children be safe they ran away from a place so i understand your point of view totally because you know they could seem to you like they're coming to take the opportunities that could be available to you you know but that is 15 year old me yeah so as i grew and as I grew in my faith, I, I believe the, the Bible says that God has a plan to bless every nation on earth. Yeah. All the tribes, all the nations, all the families. So I believe God wants good things for the world. And by getting to know people from all over the world, I can get to be a part of this grand vision for what can happen in the world. And instead of seeing immigrants and people here as a threat, I can see that as an opportunity both that I can as I meet people from other cultures they're both a blessing to me and I can be a blessing to them I think we need to get um, accustomed to the idea that with all the changes and the new world order that's happening we are going to have to accept the I mean we already are in the process of accepting the notion of immigrants Yes. (laughs) you know it started to happen from before and now it's happening even more so this is this is a contemporary phenomena that we have now being an immigrant or a refugee um, that's that's going to be normalized it's going to be normalized even more and more and it's because of all the power shifts that are happening in the world because of the Arab Spring (laughs) because of everything that's happened and you know who's to say which government didn't have anything to do with what government that pushed these people to move away I mean 
you know, sometimes governments who accept refugees, let's say from a certain nation, from Nation X, they make this Nation X pay for it. Yeah. So people who are coming here are getting paid for by their government. But the people who live in this country don't know that. They think they're just coming to take off, to take money and opportunities from them. So, so there are a lot of misconceptions and things that people in the modern times know and not know. But I think the immigrant and refugee phenomena is something that's going to be normalized. And it is part of the fabric of the world right now. It's even more of like, you know, accepting gay people, accepting this and then accepting immigrants. Like, you got to accept everyone and coexist. And this is something that 20 years ago wasn't as normal as it is right now. And I think one of the big challenges in that is being able to hold on to cultural distinctives and enjoy and celebrate those things and not just get just get it get sort of assimilated into some sort of global society. Yeah. Because and I think that's what's so great about what you're doing is that you're keeping art and culture alive through your work. And you're not and and you get you're kind of defining yourself. You're you're not you you define yourself by being Heba, not by not by not by where I'm from or what I do or it's just this is who I am. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, in that you can still celebrate who you where you're from and you can still yeah, celebrate. And I do. And also to that point, I mean ever since I remember we've celebrated Christmas in my family's house back in Iraq. We've had a Christmas tree every single year. And we went to like a Christmas party where we got gifts and everybody danced and music. So this was and we used to go to pray at the local church in Baghdad. I don't know if it's my family or what's happening, but this is how it was back when I remember Baghdad in the 90s. People were very intermingled with the Christian faith. So our neighbors were Christian. They're always at our house. During religious holidays, they come celebrate them with us. For their Christmas, we, you know, celebrate celebrate it with them. And, you know, it was always easy. I've never had someone in my household say, oh, this person is so-and-so or like, they're bad no never at all actually one of my mom's cousin he's married an iraqi lady who is christian and he's muslim but he doesn't really practice he drinks and he just doesn't care but you know what i mean like we don't have this like you know constraint on like differences and that i think that does do a lot to who i am now today yes me coming from such an open-minded household and, th- and that's part of the world view behind everything as well because ultimately you come from an open-minded world view so you want you want diversity you want people to be able to experience and meet each other and yeah but that is not every worldview no it's not and, and so worldview and religion while there's no, maybe no particular religion that defines that for you rather it's your kind of family background Mm -hmm. it's still your worldview and you and everybody's worldview is going to determine the kind of things they want in 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 policy so i don't so so somebody could say i believe in the separation of church and state and everyone's like yeah good good the president could get up tomorrow and say i believe 
in the separation of state and morality. And you might be like, yeah, we know. Uh, but you can't separate the laws you make from what you believe the moral system should be. I, I think I think there it's time for us to develop a moral system that stands by itself, that doesn't necessarily have to follow a certain religion. There has to be like a, humani- a humanity system in place that people can come to agree to whether they are religious or not whether they follow the same faith or not because you do have because of the diversity and because of how everyone comes from a different background and they have different beliefs it is important to find that one thing that unites them and not that make them feel that they're different because what what might you know what, what some rules that might be influenced by Christian faith are not going to be resonating with someone who has a Jewish faith for example so separating that from government and power and politics is is very important in my opinion the the but even even then right you've got this common code of humanity that you're not always going to have agreement on so even by saying common code of humanity there's an assumption in there that all humans are equal and should have equal dignity under the law. Yeah. Regardless of religious practice. Yeah. But that isn't a universal idea. Why? Because, again, in Hinduism, you have, you have again, the idea of a caste system. But then it's Hinduism. That's my point. But if you separate religion, if you say, I don't want to hear about faith or religion, let's just establish a system that is good for humans you know and then if you want to pray at your church temple mosque do whatever you want to do this you know that's your own personal thing with your god and divine and guidance but let's separate that from this then we would prevent such as the the caste system that hinduism had and and there's there is somewhat of a battle for that in india but even then what you're appealing to is is reason you're appealing to everybody's reason for morality. That put religion aside, try and think about what's reasonable. But we differ on that as well. But so, they're following the Hinduism religion. Yes. But even but even say let's let's say let's take God out of morality. Let's say let's let's come up with a conclusion. All people all people should be equal under the law. well why? What is there observable in human nature which makes us all equal? We're all, we're not all as beautiful, we're not all as, that's subjective obviously, we're not all as fast, we're not all as intelligent, we're not all as strong, we're all different. Equality is not something that's observable, it's something that you have to believe about people. It's not something that's deduced from biology or physics or anything like that. It's something that to say the child is equal to the adult, that the man and the woman and the and the and the handicapped person, to say that they're all equal is is a worldview belief that doesn't just occur to us naturally. Yeah, and, it, and you know and of course this is a very like 
general thing to say <laughs> that everybody is equal. I mean, to a certain degree, yes. You know, people are equal to their rights of you know being able to sleep in a safe place and drink, have you know access to clean water and have food on the table and good health, like basic human rights. You know, but it, but if of course you know when you get bogged down to it, you know there has to be differentiation. For example, based on just like when you apply for a job right now everybody is equal but it depends on your experience right it depends on if you if you have been educated in that area or not so i guess it's situational you can say it's depending on the situation but in terms of governing people i think if we want to be fair to everybody given how diverse our societies are becoming day in and day out it is important to establish some sort of a government that is not affiliated with any religious entity. It's a fair idea, I think. Religious entity, agreed. But it has to it has to come from a world. It has to come from a worldview. And so, in in my mind, yeah. If we if we can get too philosophical on worldviews, I could see how this can swing so wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean because some people's worldview is me, 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 me. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. So, so and I, I totally those people get it, yeah. generally become politicians <laughs> just for that reason. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You're right. Yeah, I mean, you know, layman's terms. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, the society I want to live in is a society where no one's forced to believe what I want to believe, but inevitably what I believe does impact the kind of laws I want to see made. And I think that's, depending on what you believe, that's generally a... Don't we already live in a society like this? Well... Not good enough? Not good enough. (laughs) But I think that's good, though. Yeah. Because imagine if we have a hundred other people like you with so many different faiths who want the same thing as you. Can you imagine how crazy it would be to pass a bill or a law because everybody wants it to be influenced by what they believe and their moral views based on their religion well, well yes so but there has to be a level of difficulty there well, well, well y- yes but the, the part of what I would say is the way that my worldview works I think you don't have to agree with everything I agree with in order to find my way of life compelling yeah so, for example, from the Protestant Reformation in Europe, we've got, we've, that brought about education, limited governments, nation states, accountability of leaders, and technology and economy. That comes out of the Protestant Reformation in Europe, going from Germany to Geneva to the Protestant, the Protestant nations like Germany, England then later America, Canada, Australia. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at where the most desirable countries for immigrants to move to, it's, it has been those countries. It's been the countries that have been influenced by the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. So if people want to be, if people want to come and they want to have freedom of expression. Now, I believe in freedom of expression because I believe that's what Jesus wants. Now, you, you believe in freedom of expression because you're an individual and 
you've you've experienced what it's like not having that. Mm-hmm. And so you and I, we could make a law together that says we're free to express ourselves because we both want that. Yeah, but Just, it doesn't always. It's not always such a happy accident. Oh no no no! no. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like like this works, right? But then. There are other folks who will just, you know, go right against what you want because of their own faith and what they believe they're, they're Jesus. Because I know even in Christianity and Catholicism and stuff, there's different kinds. Oh, yeah. I think maybe your Jesus is different than their Jesus. And so, like, you can, you can also get... That could be very dicey, you know. It's good to to want to see what you morally believe um, and what your religion and, you know, living your life that way. You want it to be integrated in how it affects society. But at the same time, when we have such a diverse society, it's a little bit crazy because we have so many different religions. Yes. But when however many religions you have, yeah. you have to have a host culture. So what I'm saying is... The, in order to have a multicultural society, you have to have one the culture at the basis of it saying, we want other ideas to be able to freely express themselves. Mm. So if you have that culture, then you can have that initial culture which believes in diversity, mm-hmm. you can have that. If you have a host culture that does not believe in diversity, you're you like, say, old school Saudi Arabia don't want to throw any of the current government under the bus because mm-hmm. we'll see how they do then people from all different cultures and languages and worldviews are able to go there but there's some things they're not able to say mm-hmm. because the host culture there is this Sal- was this Salafism which says no 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 criticism of the, the regime or the religion can be tolerated at all yeah so you have to have a host culture which which welcomes different ideas that it doesn't agree with. And I believe that historic Protestant Christianity has, has done that. Now, for me personally, you talk about these different versions of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm far more concerned about people twisting who Jesus is than I am from people who don't believe in him. Mm-hmm. I think a co-option of Jesus is much more dangerous in my world than Muslims, atheists, Nazis, anything else. Not to not to loop those all in together, but what I'm saying is I'm yeah. not worried about other ideas that are not me, yeah. that are not Christians yeah. coming in and destroying me. Because you're more concerned about the faith being authentic. Yeah. And actually having a true message. And if, I feel like I can share that with you in terms of Islam. I'm also more concerned about like ISIS don't represent Islam at all what they did what you know people of ISIS did that's just awful the whole thing is awful the whole thing is wrong all of it it doesn't has nothing to do with what Islam says you're supposed to be doing they're people who I don't know they're a bunch of assassins I don't know what they are but like you know I I share the same thing with you is I'm more concerned with people who are ruining the image of modern Muslim in this world than people who are on the outside necessarily. Although Islam is really under the heat more than any other faith right now <laughs> has been for mm-hmm. the past 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, yeah, like it's important also how Muslims do appear to others, right? 
So, you know, showing that, you know, and I'm glad that person that you went out with ordered a red wine because he's showing, hey, you know, people, even back home, people drink all the time. <laughs> They're just like normal folks, just like everyone else. They have their days where they feel bad. They pray, ask for forgiveness, and they have their days where they just enjoy themselves. <laughs> you know, it's just, they're normal folks, just like anyone else. They want to pay their bills, go to sleep, go to work, buy a nicer home. That's it. <laughs> and and that's that's largely what this, the, the, the hope of this podcast is that instead of just talking about high-minded religious ideals, which is important to talk about, that people get to see an experience that it's the, the Muslim world is not monolithic at all, and that there's a whole range of people to meet and talk to. That if if you stick to prejudices and fears, that you'll just you'll just not experience. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, I've been blessed with previous opportunity like this at one point to speak at a panel to also discuss, you know, Muslim women in art. And it was me who paints nude figures. <laughs> and it was another woman who's a dancer. And she wears hijab, but she is a dancer. She's a ballerina. And there's another woman who sings, and uh, a lesbian couple who are Muslim, and they are in the film industry. So there's just so many different kinds of people. And this is our contemporary world. There is diversity, you know, and there are you can say reformative ideas of how Islam and religion um, it's supposed to evolve I think I think a successful religion or faith should be able to somehow evolve with changing times you know where people can still go back to it and find peace with it so the one thing I'm actually writing a for an appendix for a book right now about reformation and the Muslim world mm -hmm. and 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 when people talk about reformation in the Muslim world, they're usually calling for a different thing than what happened in medieval Europe, mm -hmm. because the I'd actually make the slightly ridiculous sounding the argument that religious literalism is what transformed Europe into the modern age, not progressivism in religion. Mm. And here, and here's why the. In, in about 300 AD, there's this, there's this school called the Alexandrian School in Egypt, which basically says the things in the Bible are metaphors, primarily. They're allegories, mm -hmm. which means that you can't understand them unless you're taught them properly by a church leader. Now, if, if that's true, then there's no point you reading the Bible yourself because you can't even understand it if you do. Mm-hmm. So once all power is in the hands of leaders, then they can say whatever the hell they want to say, sometimes earnestly, sometimes with bad motives, but you, you no longer have the ability to test your leaders. Right. So what the Reformation is, is this idea that actually God has spoken in his word and we have the ability to test everything people do by what God himself has said which so they started and that, that coincided with the printing press so the bible was translated into the common people's language and spread everywhere which led to enormous literacy rates in europe and that led to 
this sort of democrat democratization of Europe as well. Because if everybody's educated, and they and I as the individual am capable of understanding who God is, what He has to say to me, what He has to say to the world, then I have a standard by which I can hold my leaders to. And uh, but if, if I'm in a religious position where well, I have to be a religious scholar to be able to understand this, then I'm captive to whatever the scholars tell me. And this can happen in secularism as well, because it's instead of morality, it becomes about education. Well, I'm not, ed I'm not educated enough to understand what justice is, what's going to help, what's not going to help. I'm not educated enough to understand borders or foreign wars or anything. So I've just got to leave it to the ex experts. So what you need is a widespread belief in personal responsibility and how that impacts the government. And that's what believing in the Bible did to, to Europe. And I think it can still do that today. Interesting. I've never heard this before, but I like it. I mean, I feel like that's the responsibility of religion, right? Yeah. That's what God intended for it to do in the first place to make you a better human being so you can have better impact on your society and build a better ecosystem <laughs> around you and it's just sometimes it can swing the other way because of the politicians and they want to further their agendas yes yeah and, but but also it has the it has the ability to transform that because what we believe a leader should be is actually really important mm -hmm. so if you think about europe before Jesus not that Jesus was European that sounds stupid saying that but if you think about sort of Europe at the time of the Roman Empire mm -hmm. the ideal hero is Alexander the Great right so the Greeks invented democracy and hated it mm -hmm. uh, because it killed Socrates so Plato said no eh, let's let's not do democracy let we want philosopher kings the ultimate political leader the ultimate religious leader the ultimate military leader Plato trained Aristotle. Aristotle was the personal mentor of Alexander the Great, who went and became this philosopher king. Mm -hmm. And if you if you take a view to Islamic history, where Muhammad was the supreme military, political, and religious leader in his time, and I think you can make a very good case for that through the Charter of Medina, mm -hmm. and you believe that's what the caliphs were supposed to do as well, if that's what you idealize as your leader, then what are you going to get? You're going to get people who are trying to be the ultimate religious leader, the ultimate political leader, and the ultimate civil leader. So you get men like Saddam Hussein and others who are always trying to give this appearance of I'm the best Muslim, I'm the strongest warrior, and I'm the most competent governor. I don't remember him being much into religion, really. I no. think he was more like... Uh... I mean, he was of the Sunni faith, but everybody in the nation knew that he had nothing to do with religion. Oh yeah, yeah. But I think he still. So yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying he's a seriously religious man. I'm just saying he. He still, even then, he will make these overtures to religion, because that's what. That's how people are trying to position themselves. Yeah. And if you have that, if. It, and but if you have this sort of military, if you have this military ideal of what a leader is, then ultimately strength and power are always power greatness looks like dominating your enemies on the battlefield 
mm-hmm. and then bringing order through competent governance all while being all while being pious and righteous yeah and that's and that's how most dictators and bad leaders try to position themselves whereas jesus says when he's talking about leadership whoever wants to become greatest among you must first become your servant mm-hmm. and so so if you look so the idea that that's kind of what um Bayt, like the what the shia the shia muslims believe in the uh grand uh, the son uh, the daughter and her husband of prophet muhammad and their kids that's what they did they were more of servants and they were very lived super humbly like near starvation kind of yes uh so if you compare ali's khalifa time with the others they see the others lived a more comfortable life where he was doing that jesus practice basically and a lot of times when the sunni attack the shia they say you follow a lot like the christians you you have a lot of stuff similar to the christians you do this you do that you you whip yourself up because of uh, you know how the hussein was killed i don't know if you're familiar yes with yes the story so it's it's interesting you brought that up you know being a servant first before a leader because i remember this was the teaching actually this was one of the teachings of prophet muhammad is that you're supposed to be that way but i i if i recall correctly from what i read is that there was a lot of money um around and politics and so it was hard to get everyone on board to be like that because some people at the time joined islam just because it, it would serve their businesses better yeah yeah well i mean it's definitely so if you read al-tabari there's this leader of the city of taif who's considering you know, who, who, the, his city is besieged by the Muslim forces, and he's offered, okay, well, if you become a Muslim, I'll return your wife and family back to you, and I'll give you one hundred camels. The, there's financial incentives from the beginnings for tribal yeah. leaders, yeah, and it's something that's used to forge the early Islamic, yeah, and and so you you do have all that in there, but you're you're right about the you're right about the Hussein and Jesus parallels because both in Christianity and Shia Islam and so in Shia Islam greatness is not necessarily always winning no right that Hussein willingly goes to his death to to, to sort of make a statement against corruption and that's what you have with Jesus you have this willing willing laying down of his life for the people he loves now we believe in the resurrection as well so it doesn't end in jesus being dead on the cross yeah but it ends with a resurrection but yeah. he's ultimately going there to lay down his life for his people so greatness doesn't look like destroying others and defeating others but greatness looks like laying down your life so that others may may prosper yeah and if we if we have a system where we not a system but if we have if we have a culture full of people that believe that that is eventually good for government systems. Absolutely. But that is that does affect how I view government systems. Yeah. That I don't want I don't want the, the the person at the top to fix all my problems. I want him to be a servant leader with a limited scope of what he's there to do. And 
and, and I'm not looking for him to fix all my problems. He's not. He's not going to be God. He's not going to be Satan either. Yeah. I think it's a lot more complicated than what we wish for, unfortunately. It is. Especially when there's a lot of money at hand. Um, and, you know, the motives behind people joining, you know, the political climate. People who have no former education or expertise in being politicians. Then they join and they become politicians and rule our country. So To be fair, you can learn to lie and steal anywhere. Huh? You can learn to lie and steal anywhere. <laughs> but that but really that's that's where my worldview comes into it that i'm i have i have a very low bar expectations of what people at the top are going to fix but i have the opportunity right now to live differently it's easy to want lofty things from society okay we should society should take care of immigrants okay well what about what about your life do you have any friends who are from different countries do you have absolutely yeah yeah you know we all have a duty to do what we can within our means and give back somehow absolutely yeah volunteering you know being nicer to people who are newcomers offering advice sometimes just offering advice some people they just are desperate for what do i do in this situation you just give them and they're like, oh, thank you. I've never heard this before. Sometimes just small things like that can help. Absolutely. So, yeah, I agree with you. Helping helping newcomers navigate the freaking parking ticket system here. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. It's so brutal. It is brutal. It is brutal. I didn't really get any tickets. I mean, I've lived in Seattle for 10 years. And I've never gotten tickets other than just parking tickets. <laughs> I think I'm a, I'm, a, I'm probably about two a year at this point. Oh my gosh. But I, I actually managed to successfully... I, I had one that I paid that the system did not think that I paid. So I oh. had like this long argument with collections. Oh my goodness. But then I managed to prove that I'd paid it. Oh, and they all had to swallow their pride and be like, oh, you actually did pay this. And they took it off. Yeah, it was so, like, it was so satisfying. It's so rewarding. <laughs> like, and I did not have to call the collections guy back. Yeah. But I'm like, hey... Hey, guess what? Guess what? Guess what? <laughs> you remember how you thought I was lying? Oh my gosh. That's so funny. <laughs> uh, well, it, this was really nice. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah. We, we, I will have to do this again sometime. You've been really fun to talk to. I, for I, sure. I feel like I could talk to you for like four days straight about stuff. I know. Me too. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks. Um, and where can people, before we go, where can people find your art? On my website, www dot hibajamil.com uh, h-i-b-a-j-a-m-e-e-l dot com okay thanks and we'll link in the descriptions yeah so people can find you that and way and my social media as well yes I'll, I'll, I'll link to all that I'll send it to you yeah well, thank th- you so much thank you so much for being on the show today no. and thank you guys for listening to the Almeida Initiative podcast we'll be back next week with another episode